0: canada known for its maple syrup and very generous r&d tax incentives on this episode of fiona's r&d tax credits podcast we're examining the r&d tax credit in canada its evolution benefits and the programs in place to support them our guest is ren gargan a tax expert at Acerna, a software company based in Canada. We're also joined by Director of R&D Tax Incentives at Cross-Border Solutions, Rahim Walji, who will be leading today's session. In fact, I will hand things over to him right now. Rahim, you have the floor.
1: Excellent. Thanks, Matt, and welcome, Ren. Thank you very much for being here. My pleasure, Rahim. So if you could just start us out by telling us a little bit about yourself and your experience with R&D tax credits.
2: Absolutely. I was one of those people who got through university and didn't know what they wanted to do and just landed in the job. And it turned out to be a great job. So I was a consultant for about 10 years in the big four firms and then decided that it was time to venture out and go into industry and have been fortunate to continue my involvement with the program from an industry
1: perspective. So, rent Canada has been encouraging research and development activities for for a long time, since the 40s, from what some of the legislation shows. And that demonstrates a real commitment to R&D and innovation overall, as compared to the US especially, which didn't end up launching the R&D credit until the early 1980s. Can you describe sort of the high-level evolution of Canada's tax incentives and where it stands today?
2: Raheem, you're pushing my knowledge here a bit. Uh, 1944 is a bit too far back for me. What I think we can say is that the program over many decades has been very stable. If you're looking to claim and you're looking to take up R&D, that stability and support is really critical. In addition, outside the program, Kennedy is being consistent in ensuring that it has other programs that are either grants or loan-based to support R&D. So I think that overall we're seeing that the government of Canada is prioritizing that support so that we can have that innovation here.
1: I would agree, especially with, it looks like the data is showing over $3 billion in tax incentives to various claimants under the program. So I, I would tend to agree with that. So in terms of the benefits that the r and d tax credit provides in Canada, can you tell us a little bit about how the credit actually works in terms of the tax rates and, and offsets and things like that? Just some of the, the little details.
2: When most people think about their credit, I mean, they think about the refundable credits, and that's really what the program is most known for. So in Canada, Canadian-controlled private corporations, which are corporations owned 50% or more by Canadian residents, can get a 35% refundable credit on their claim, which is quite a significant boon if you're thinking about how that compares favorably to other areas in the world. In addition to that, much like the States, we also have what we call provincial programs and they can range up to 15% refundable. It also has other benefits. And the main one is the ability to carry forward losses from R&D expenditures indefinitely. So for companies that are starting up and might be experiencing a significant investment in R&D over their first five to 10 years, the ability to carry forward those losses throughout the life of the business and apply them to future revenues also has a lot of value.
1: Absolutely. You know, the loss carrying forward is definitely a nice distinction between the Canadian credit and the US credit. So I know the credit itself for Canada can be carried back a few years and carried forward up to 20 years, kind of similar to the US. And I know in terms of industries, you know, it seems like there's a little bit of overlap between both countries targeting, you know, engineering, design, research, mathematical analysis, things like that. There seem to be some overlaps there. In terms of the U.S. credit itself, you know, we have a, a four-tier compliance or eligibility standard that gives a pretty broad definition of, of what qualifies compared to to Canada. You know, today in the U.S., the R&D tax credit can be used on developing new or improved products, whereas Canada's program is more focused on you know, new technologies, scientific knowledge, pushing the boundaries of an industry forward. Can you tell us a little bit about the types of activities that are eligible for an R&D tax credit in Canada?
2: Yeah, so as you've articulated, the goal of the program is really to support work that is done to develop technology or the scientific pool of knowledge. And the way we term that is, it's got to overcome a technological unknown. It isn't to say that if you're developing something new or improved, it's a product or a service, that there isn't space to fit it here it's just that we frame that question a little bit differently so there's lots of eligible activities that can be involved much further than the lab space the majority of canada's claims are by companies that are working in industry and are looking to do something better whether that's on their production side or a feature that they want to have in their final product we see that engineers scientists Or even just technicians who are working in industry have questions that they want to solve, and that's where the program fits in. What I often used to say to my clients is, What kept you up at night? Because that's the eligible work, the thing that you couldn't solve.
1: Absolutely. Unfortunately, sometimes on the US side, it's dealing with the people, and unfortunately, that piece doesn't always qualify, right? So, um, (laughs) in terms of expenses, can you give a little bit of an overview on the types of expenses that are eligible to be captured? for the Canadian shred credit?
2: So the big one is people. People time and that salary cost is the most commonly claimed expenditure. And I don't have any stats on it, but I'd probably wager that it's also the largest pool of expenditures that are claimed um, across all industries. On top of that, we have four other buckets currently. You can claim materials, and there's a very strict definition about what a material is, but if you think of it as a thing that you can touch that is either transformed or consumed in some way as a result of your R&D activity, you'll be certainly on the right path. Then we have consultant sub costs, so people who you're paying for their times and services. And then we have a fourth bucket, and the fourth bucket is called overhead, which is a bit of a catch-all. I should explain that there are two types of claims in Canada. In Canada, we have a traditional claim and we have a proxy claim. And under the traditional claim, you can claim the overhead and you look and track those expenditures to determine their eligibility. If you were to elect the proxy method, you forego those overheads, but you do get a loading on your salary costs in lieu of that expenditure. A lot of companies in the software space find this to be a much more beneficial option. But if you're in mining or another overhead and intensive industry, it's great to have the traditional method available to you.
1: If you could clarify loading, you were mentioning. So loading was essentially a sort of a multiplier, if you will, on on the salary. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. So the proxy is what we call it. So the proxy prescribed proxy rate at the moment is 55%. It used to be 65, but it came down a couple of years ago. So it's 55% on what we call your base salary, which is a pretty generous loading.
1: Excellent. Thank you for clarifying.
2: There's then the things that we put on the program that restrict those costs. And particularly for people who do have a US focus, the probably the most important of those is that work needs to be done here in Canada or be in respect of work done here in Canada. So that's the program's main aim is to support work done here. So as soon as you end up with a US-based consultant, which is very common, or you might have a team that's partly in the US, partly in Canada, it's only the Canadian portion of those costs that is generally eligible.
0: Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions ai-driven transfer pricing software it's no wonder we're the global leader in ai-driven tax solutions there we go again i'm so sorry big you know what wait who am i kidding sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp
1: Tell us a little bit about what the claiming process looks like in Canada you know there's an application that needs to be submitted just tell us about you know kind of start to finish what that process looks like
2: so the process obviously starts with determining whether you have eligible work and then the expenditures and then when you're ready to make that claim so when you know what it is that you're going to be claiming it goes in our tax return much like the us one so there's what we call a t661 which is the form that has all the expenditure claims on it and that's where you outline the categories of costs that you're claiming and all the other information that the government requires from you. That's a prescribed form for us, so you've got to be a little bit careful. Things like the proxy method that we discussed earlier, if you make that election, it's irrevocable for us. So making sure that when you complete that form, it's complete and accurate is really important before you file. In addition to that form, we also have what we call the part two or the schedule 32, depending on who you talk to. And that's where we tell the government what the claim is. That's where your technical information goes and that's where you outline why you think your project is eligible against the eligibility criteria that the government has set out in legislation. Once you submit that claim, it's really in the government's hands to review that information. And a couple of things can happen. The first thing that can happen is the best outcome, which is the government accepts your claim without review, at which point they'll continue to process it. And if you're entitled to a refund, You can expect to see those funds in your bank not very long after. The second thing that can happen is you might get selected for a review. And at this point, you're just looking at a desktop review. And that can happen for a number of reasons. It might happen because you got randomly selected by the government's algorithm. You might be in a target industry that the government's focusing on. Or there might be something in your claim that the government's AI has flagged that they want to look at. You'll actually never know if this happened to you because if the person who looks at it decides that it doesn't warrant any further investigation it'll then get accepted and to you it'll look like it's accepted as filed without a review the third thing that can happen is that they can reach out to you and that's when an audit starts so they would reach out to you with an information request and you start to go down the path of sharing information with the government and working with them to help them understand why your project should be eligible and you should be entitled to the funds
1: that you've claimed. So Ren, can you tell us a little bit more about this desktop review and what that's all about?
2: The desktop review really just means that they're not gonna come and talk to the taxpayer. So they might be reviewing the information that you've provided, and then that auditor might be looking on Google to compare, to see how they think the technology uncertainty fits within the current body of knowledge available to the industry and public knowledge available in the industry. Or they might be looking against the trends. So they might have seen that the type of expenditures you're claiming are disproportionate to what they would expect to see in your industry, and they're looking for something in what you've written to explain that. So the best claims that get submitted answer these questions up front so that if you end up in a desktop review, the auditor doesn't reach out to you.
1: Absolutely. You always have to anticipate what the tax authorities are going to be looking for, right?
2: Absolutely.
1: And in terms of those things they're looking for, so you mentioned disproportionate costs might be one thing for the industry. What are some of the other items that might flag the CRA or the technologies you mentioned, that, that kind of scans these returns? What are some of those items that might cause those red flags?
2: That's always a little bit of a black box, Raheem. So if we knew that, I think a lot of consultants would be in a much better position to advise their clients. At this point in time, we're kind of guessing. Mm-hmm. But what we can see from the trends is that there's definitely an industry aspect. And a good example of that might be where there's a new technology that's coming on board and a lot of people are jumping on it. And the government wants to make sure that the parts of the work that shouldn't be claimed aren't being claimed. In that example, I'd be talking about work to bring your staff up to speed on the publicly available knowledge, because that's not R&D. They wanna know that that's not claimed. And it's only when you're trying to further develop that technology or that technology's application in your space that you're making a claim. We also think that that might be related to certain keywords. There are certain things like trial and error that the legislation specifically articulates as ineligible. So if your project description, the way you've submitted it to the government talks about a lot of trial and error, I would expect that you should be getting a desktop review because the way it would flag to a program and to a reviewer initially would indicate that their work wasn't eligible.
1: That makes sense. And is it pretty similar just with the provincial credits, or, or is it kind of unique to each province in terms of the application process?
2: It is a little bit unique, and I'm not quite sure if our U.S. listeners are familiar, but we have a program called Complying Provinces and Non-Complying Provinces. So the province I live in is Alberta, and we're a non-complying province, which means our government likes to ask for its own copy of everything. And... The costing rules are different here. And so we need to submit that claim separately to the Alberta government for their review. And then they follow a fairly similar process. If you were to be in Ontario, however, they're a complying province. And whatever the government determines will apply
1: for the purposes of the provincial program. Excellent. Thank you very much for that summary.
0: Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it.
1: So you mentioned, you know, once a claim has been reviewed or accepted, it generally the payout process or the refund process is, is pretty efficient. I think according to one of the Canadian revenue reports, the average claim takes about 60 days to process. Can you tell us why this is critical for companies applying and what it says about the CRA's priority toward R&D tax credits?
2: I will just put a little bit of a caveat on that statistic, if I may. That's the 60-day figure that CRA have been sharing around. It has three caveats on it. It's for a CCPC who files their tax return within the six-month filing deadline and who has made a prior claim. If you don't meet all of those criteria, it's not uncommon for your review to have a longer claim. That being said, it's still a pretty good turnaround for a government that needs to go through the process of ensuring that the program isn't being used and abused. They're doing a very efficient job of prioritizing particularly refunds for smaller businesses where cash flow is so important.
1: Absolutely. The fact that they've created a process for even prior claimants who meet a certain timeline requirement is, is something that I know, you know the U.S. Could, could definitely learn from and, and try <laughs> to implement a little bit more of a faster process. Now, you know, the U.S., sort of gives you the benefit of the doubt in your in your filing that you get the credit right there and then and then you know the, the tax authority can come back after a couple of years and, and audit it and, and ask questions and you have to kind of go back and make sure you've got all your documentation in a row. So anticipating those tax authority questions or those red flags is is really important as compared to you know the Canadian process of approving it up front.
2: Yeah, I mean there's a little tidbit we really should share with everyone. Well, CRA does a great job in most cases about doing an assessment upfront. There are certainly cases where the claim will get processed because the tax return got processed, but it isn't actually reviewed, and the CRA does have the right to come back for up to 4 years later. So, people need to be really careful when they're reading their correspondence from the CRA to make sure they're seeing that the claim has been accepted without a review. Sometimes that absence of information can be just as telling about what might happen in the future.
1: Ren, can you tell us a little bit about Canada's perspective on innovation and scientific research and its focus on how that innovation can impact the Canadian economy? Can you just tell us a little bit about that perspective?
2: We know that a lot of governments around the world support R&D and have dedicated programs. I think what we can infer here in Canada is that the government's really committed to this. This program, as you mentioned earlier, has been around a long time. And it's been really stable. It's a really significant incentive. At 35%, it can make and break a lot of research work. The fact that it's also supported by a suite of non-tax program-based incentives, including grants, forgivable loans, and then significant repayable loans, I think indicates that the Canadian government sees R&D and the innovation work that comes along with that as a fundamental part of our
1: economic future. Part of that future also is relevant. So Canada has a strategic innovation fund. Do you have any information about that program and how it pertains to R&D?
2: I've never claimed it, Rahim, but I can share a few general facts. Contrary to the R&D program, it's a pre-approved program. Applicants work with an advisor to get approved. And then once that's approved, they know the support they're gonna get from the government. The program offers both repayable and non-repayable funding, which means it's really available to a significantly broader group of people. It also goes well past the initial stages that we see in supported by the R&D program to include expansion and growth and almost all the way through to capitalization of an idea. So it's a really good complement to the R&D program. And we see a lot of people in the early stages start with the R&D program, Build that project, then move on to these other funding programs that the government has as they want to progress from the idea and concept phase all the way through to production and commercialization.
1: So, we've looked at the claim. You've, you've talked about the tax authority requirements. You've talked about how consultants are, you know, in the Canadian space are looking for different ways to anticipate those, those questions, those needs and guide your clients as best as possible. How can technology help companies that are claiming and substantiating R&D tax credits in Canada with that process?
2: There are lots of ways, Raheem. that technology has already helped. And I think there's also a lot of ways that people are hoping technology will help in the future. So we'll have to come at this from a couple of different angles. Let's start with the audit side. We've talked about the fact that the government can come back up to four years later Technology as a repository for retaining whether it's lab notes, calendars, recordings of things that happened is making a significant difference in the audit space. If you can show the auditor some video, evidence, or research that's date stamped, that helps them get into the mind frame of where you were back at that time, particularly in fast moving industries, and software is a great example where an auditor could Google something today and say that knowledge is really well known, bringing them back in time so that they can see what wasn't known when you were doing the R&D claim work and why that should be eligible is really important. On the other front, there's the planning aspect. Having technology undertake all of the automation for you, whether that's reminding people to track their time, put in documents, compare how you're doing against other people in your industry or even make suggestions on costs that you should be looking to claim based on the nature of the work. Technology is really helping people maximize their claims. And the final piece, technology can also help us in terms of maximizing the claim, by identifying where we should be looking to claim. Both here in Canada and the US, because we have the provincial programs in addition to the federal programs, knowing which provinces claims are available to you based on the slightly different rules, is really helpful in making sure you get the best outcome for your efforts.
1: I couldn't agree with you more, especially on that third point. You know, one of the things that we here at Border Solutions are in favor of is leveraging technology and, and AI and things of that nature to help companies understand compliance requirements, track data better, keep documentation related to the claim. And, and so I think, you know, the, the points that you've highlighted are we definitely would agree that it's such an important piece that I think a lot of companies overlook from time to time when they are making these claims of, of how technology can really help the substantiation piece as well. What R&D initiatives has the Canadian government taken recently to boost recovery related to the COVID-19 pandemic? And and what do these initiatives indicate on, on how the Canadian government sees R&D playing a role in this pandemic and post-pandemic environment?
2: To be honest, the government has come out with a lot of programs that in general support a lot of businesses through the wage subsidy and the rent subsidy programs specifically. What I think the government did really well is when it looked at its wage subsidy program, it recognized that to be eligible for that program, you had to have had diminished revenues. And if you're a startup, that wouldn't have happened. Or if you're in a growth phase, that may not have been you either. So they did come up with a secondary program which is very similar in nature, but focused on those people who are doing R&D work so that they would have wage subsidies throughout the pandemic as well.
1: And were there any changes to deadlines or extensions? You know, I know a lot of times when there are even natural disasters or other issues, you know, there's a lot of extensions and things offered. Anything like that being offered by the Canadian government at this time in relation to R&D?
2: Not that I'm aware of. There were early on. A lot of tax deadlines got pushed out and because the programs managed through the tax return, those deadlines went along with that.
1: Ren, as we wrap up today, what is some advice that you have for companies that are thinking about the Canadian credit or in the process of applying and, and need some help? What are, What's some advice or takeaways you have for them?
2: It's the same piece of advice I give to a lot of my clients over the years, which is don't discount a project until you've thought about it. So if you're not really familiar with the program, make sure that you have looked at the work you're doing because it's a bigger program than you might think, and more is eligible than people initially recognize.
1: Rena, right, I couldn't agree with you more. I think self-censoring and minimizing the level of work that's taking place leads a lot of companies to preclude themselves from the benefit that they otherwise desperately need to help keep growing and, and investing in their company. So I think we see the same thing here on the US side and would encourage the same.
0: why should you have to spend your whole r& d tax credit on getting your r and d tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with cross-border solutions. The global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. visit xps.ai/rd That's xbs.ai/D RD. right, and I believe that wraps us up for today's episode. Thank you so much to Raheem and Wren for a wonderful conversation. We especially want to thank Wren for being with us today. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That's Fiona's R&D Tax Credit podcast, and we'll fill you in on R&D Tax Credits in every episode. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello. This podcast was engineered by some guy named Matthew DeMello. Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. For CPE credits, send us an email, at xbs.ai. We'll catch you next time.